T-Line finally starts. And how did I start it? Like the brilliant bastard I am? Huh? By tapping out the largest land mammal in New Japan. Huh? I told you I'd tap it out. Now we're stuck in diesel, aren't we? This T-Line's getting underway. Oh, oh, actually, it's probably an inappropriate term to use during a climate crisis. Uh, the, you know, the intention of that expression is to say now things are rolling. Yeah. Now we're sucking diesel. Uh, but probably more appropriately, it should be something I know. Now the wind, now the windmills are spinning. The turbines, wind turbines. Yeah. It's climate change Israel. Just like the earth isn't flat. Welcome to a Wrestling House Show mini-sode for nights 7 and 8 of New Japan Pro Wrestling's G1 Climax 29. My name is Chris, and I have a lot to say about the fourth round of round-robin block matches, so I won't bore anyone with any lengthy introductions. But if this is your first mini-sode of the Wrestling House Show, and you need some explanation about what's going on, head over to cnjradio.com and check out all the mini-sodes I've done covering every night of the G1 Climax so far, and stay on cnjradio.com to browse the rest of our episodes, including the monthly Wrestling House Show wrap-ups, and our increasingly frequent super shows where Joey and I review retro shows going all the way back to classic wrestling from the 1980s. For now though, sit back, relax, or continue doing whatever you're doing, and listen to me talk about some new classic matches as I tell you everything you need to know about Round 4 of the G1 Climax 29. Night 7 of the G1 Climax 29 took place on July 20th, 2019 at 6.30pm Japanese Standard Time. This was the third of three straight nights at Korakuen Hall, and the first A-block match on Night 7 was a battle to get off the bottom of the block. It was Zack Sabre Jr., who sat at dead last as the only person in A-block to have zero points, versus Bad Luck Fale, who was in a five-way tie for the next-to-last position in the block, with only one win and two points. I think it's clear that Sabre needed a win here more, and it definitely felt like he wanted it more. Fale came to the ring with Giotto and Chase Owens just like he did against Okada during Night 5, but unlike in that match, Fale did not attack Sabre prior to this match. Instead, Sabre attacked Fale immediately upon hearing the opening bell. Sabre ran at Fale and put the much bigger man in a guillotine choke, and for the next few minutes, Sabre would crawl all over Fale, applying any hold he could make work. Fale attempted a few offensive moves, but Sabre countered every one of them into a different submission. I think my favorite during this sequence was when Sabre looked like he was going for a wheelbarrow victory roll, but Fale wasn't budging, so Sabre turned sideways as he was going forward when he was upside down and tried to apply a knee bar out of the wheelbarrow position. Eventually, Fale pulled Sabre up into a crucifix position for the bad luck fall, and Sabre crawled over Fale's back until he got into position for a royal octopus hold. Seeing Sabre crawl around Fale's body while Fale was just standing there in the center of the ring, it was like watching someone play Shadow of the Colossus. It was great. Fale's bigness paid off quickly, though. Fale backed up to the ropes with Sabre still in the octopus hold, and Fale's wide body blocked the referee's view as Giotto hit Sabre with a kendo stick. Sabre fell out to the floor where Owens got a few shots in before Fale took Sabre out to the crowd for a bit of a brawl. 
Saber was looking like he was in trouble, but Fale didn't know he was fighting against the smartest man in the room. Saber put Fale in an armbar up in the second section of seats, and he waited until the referee counted past 10 before he let go. Saber ran back to the ring, but Fale's bigness didn't help him this time, as he was too slow to make it back into the ring before the referee counted to 20. So Saber won with his wrestling brain and finally got his first two points in this year's D1. Saber was also smart enough to beat Fale without really taking any damage from the big man, so he'll be nice and fresh when he heads into his next match. But the next match during Night 7 was Lance Archer versus Hiroshi Tanahashi. Archer came into this match with a higher standing than the ace with 4 points to Tanahashi's 2 points. However, from the very start of this match, it felt like recent momentum would be a bigger factor than the overall standings. Archer was coming off of his first loss in the tournament just two nights prior, and Tanahashi was coming off of his first win. Tanahashi felt like he had the momentum on his side, and that was immediately shown by Tanahashi attacking Archer's legs before the opening bell even sounded. Tanahashi clearly started the match strong. Archer retreated out to the floor, and Tanahashi followed him by hitting a pescado over the ropes down onto Archer. Archer got his act together on the floor, though, and a running front flip off the apron onto Tanahashi got Archer into a dominant position that he would keep throughout much of this match. The crowd once again got behind Archer after his front flip as well. Just like in Archer's match with Kenta, the surprising agility that Archer displays at times had Koraku and Hall cheering his name almost as much as they cheered Tanahashi's. There were multiple dueling Tanahashi let's go Archer chants as the match went on. Archer relied on his size and strength to slow Tanahashi down anytime the ace started to build up for a comeback. Archer seemed to get cocky though, and at one point Archer yelled that he's the new ace and started to apply a Texas Cloverleaf, which is one of Tanahashi's go-to moves. Despite Archer loudly proclaiming that he's from Texas while attempting the Cloverleaf, Tanahashi managed to escape before it was fully locked in. To his credit though, Archer escaped Tanahashi's attempt at a Cloverleaf as well. Archer still seemed a bit too confident though, and he did try to walk the ropes even though he'd previously left that move out of his match with Kenta. Archer walked, but Tanahashi caught him in his twist and shout swinging neckbreaker when Archer came down off the ropes. That led directly into a fast sequence where Tanahashi put together his best string of offense, only to be stopped by a huge choke slam and a twisting splash in the corner from Archer. Tanahashi seemed like he was headed to another disappointment, but Tanahashi surprised Archer with a victory roll out of the corner, and Tanahashi got his second win of the G1 with a quick pinfall victory. And yet, the finish felt kind of sudden, but Tanahashi's victory over Saber also felt sudden. That's not a bad thing though, I did enjoy both of those matches. Maybe that's going to be Tanahashi's thing for most of this tournament, like quick, sort of desperate victories when it looks like he's on the losing end of another match. And I'm okay with that. I would like to see Archer place fairly high though, so I hope he gets a few more wins going forward. For now though, both Tanahashi and Archer sit in a three-way tie for third place along with Evil, although Tanahashi holds a tiebreaker over Archer with his win tonight. Match number three on night seven was the undefeated Kenta versus Evil. If Evil could beat Kenta tonight, then he would pull even with Kenta and Okada in the standings at the top of A block. But for Kenta, this match meant that he could remain undefeated and possibly be the sole leader of A block if Okada fell to Osprey later in the night. Kenta has been consistently good throughout the G1 this year, and though Evil stumbled and fell in his opening match against Bad Luck Fale, his win against Sonata two nights prior felt like a huge boost in momentum that would carry him through the next few matches. 
Both Kenta and Evil started this match kind of cautiously. Evil knows how dangerous Kenta can be in close range, and Kenta knows that Evil has a decided size advantage. Kenta hit a few boots on Evil early, but Evil barely registered them. Kenta tried to get under Evil's skin though as he backed Evil into the ropes and rubbed at the eye black underneath Evil's eyes. Kenta continued to disrespect Evil as the fight went out to the floor, and that helped put the crowd solidly behind Evil for the rest of this match. Evil started to dominate on the floor, and he started by wrapping a chair around Kenta's head and smashing it with another chair. Evil then beat up Kenta through one of the hallways as they made their way behind the commentary area to a stage set up in front of the risers. Evil set up a pile of chairs and went for a suplex, but after a few switches of leverage, Kenta ended up suplexing Evil onto the chairs. That put Kenta in the lead as both men finally got back into the ring. Kenta continued to dominate Evil, but he couldn't put the match away. Evil built up to a segment that forced Kenta to start trading blows in the center of the ring, and Evil won that exchange with a quick headbutt that sent Kenta straight down to the mat. By now, the energy in the crowd had picked up considerably, and both men picked up the pace in response. After a few more near falls and some more back and forth with both men trying to hit their finishers, Kenta managed to hit Go to Sleep before Evil could get his Everything is Evil STO, and Kenta got the pinfall victory. I'm cool with Kenta staying undefeated up to this point. He is one of my picks to win the block, and possibly the whole tournament, so yeah, I'm happy with this result. I feel like I want to see everyone do well though, and so while I'm happy for Kenta, I hope this loss doesn't derail Evil's momentum too much. Hopefully his win over Sonata wasn't his peak in the tournament, and on a side note, at this point in the show, I really felt like New Japan was doing some of their classic booking for Night 7 of the G1. I tend to see where New Japan's matches continually get better as the show goes along, and this match between Kenta and Evil was definitely the best match of the night so far. The next to last A block match during Night 7 continued the show's upward trend in matches. It was Sonata versus Kota Ibushi, and it was great. Both men went into this match with only one win and two points, so with Kenta already at eight points, both Sonata and Ibushi needed this win. Sonata was coming off of a loss in the previous round, but though Ibushi was coming off a big win against Will Ospreay, Ibushi's ankle was still questionable. And with this being Ibushi's third match in three days with his injury, counting the tag match in the previous night, it seems certain that Ibushi would have some issues with his ankle. That wasn't the case at first though. Ibushi and Sonata started with a technical exchange that served as a feeling out process. They traded some basic holds for a while, then the action erupted with a burst of quick strike attempts that had both men running around the ring and avoiding each other's moves for the most part. The sequence ended with Ibushi simply walking away from an attempted dropkick from Sonata, and with that exchange, the tone of the match was set. This was a very even match, with both men going from technical exchanges full of counters upon counters, to some quick and risky attempts at slams and strikes, to strong style sequences where they would just trade blows until someone went down. They would go from sequence to sequence seamlessly. It really was a testament to how well-rounded and experienced both men are in many different styles of wrestling. I've talked before in these G1 episodes about how well Sonata adapts to anyone's style. So with someone like Ibushi, who blends styles throughout his match, Sonata was able to display his chameleon-like abilities in a pretty spectacular way. This match was a pleasure to watch from a technical standpoint, and the drama both men put into it made it exciting. It felt like both men really respected each other by the way they approached this match. 
and the commentators confirmed that, saying that Abushi felt like Sonata might be in the wrong faction, and that Sonata had previously put Abushi on his list, along with four men he respects most in pro wrestling. Even though neither man went cheap or dirty, Sonata did attack Abushi's leg pretty early in the match. He didn't go directly for Ibushi's ankle, but he did dropkick Ibushi's knee. That dropkick to the knee would come back to slow Ibushi down later in the match, and it was compounded by the fact that Ibushi seemed to start feeling some pain in his ankle after repeatedly landing on his feet during the match. I think the pain caused Ibushi to slow the pace down every once in a while, and during those moments he would try to take Sonata down to the mat. Eventually though, Ibushi's instincts took over, and he and Sonata were standing up and trading blows in the middle of the ring. After that, Ibushi started looking for knee strikes, and Sonata started looking for his skull-end dragon sleeper. Both men kept countering and countering and countering, but Ibushi started to pull ahead by once again hitting a Bomaye knee strike. Sonata couldn't come back from that, and a well-placed kick to Sonata's head, followed soon by Kamigoye, earned Ibushi a well-deserved victory. So Ibushi pulled himself out of a tie for the bottom of the block, and into a four-way tie for third, and Sonata found himself in a deep hole with only one win and three losses. Kind of like what I said earlier, I want to see everyone do well, and I feel bad for Sonata, but I'm hoping that this win combined with his win over Osprey is the springboard that Ibushi needs to rise to the top of the block. Oh, and there was no Paradise Lock in this match, so that breaks the streak of Paradise Lock shenanigans in the G129. Abushi did go for the Paradise Lock, but Sonata avoided it, and Sonata never tried to apply it to Abushi. I think the respect that Sonata has for Ibushi might have something to do with him not even attempting to put the Paradise Lock on him. And the final A-block match during Night 7 was a battle of champions. It was the junior heavyweight champ Will Ospreay versus the IWGP heavyweight champ Kazuchika Okada. A champ versus champ match should be good, and this was great. Ospreay's neck was still in bad shape. His neck and shoulders were heavily taped once again during Night 7, and he and Okada both started the match fairly cautiously. They exchanged a few holds to get a feel for each other, but it was only a matter of time before someone kickstarted the action. Osprey was the first to push the pace, and he exploded with a burst of fast offense that pushed Okada to even keep up and to avoid getting kicked a whole bunch of times. Okada ended up going out to the floor after this first big sequence, and Osprey had made the first big point of the match. While Okada was kind of resetting outside, Osprey sat on the second rope and invited Okada back into the ring. It seemed like kind of an arrogant move, but I think it really exemplified the tone of this match. Both Okada and Osprey are members of the Chaos faction, so this was a respectful fight, but neither man was going to be pushed around or overshadowed. They were friendly, but their competitive natures drove them to be confident to the point of arrogance at times. Okada returned the favor of holding the ropes by inviting Osprey back into the ring about a minute after Osprey had done it, and neither man would accept the offer. Okada did seem a lot more confident than Osprey during this match, though. Okada was calm and poised early in the match, and he went so far as to allow Osprey to strike him just to show how tough he was. That sort of backfired on Okada when Osprey hit a gigantic chop that was as loud as any I've ever heard in a wrestling ring. That sent Okada down and into the corner, and Okada came back with a bit of a different mindset. Okada hit Osprey with a neckbreaker, and Okada would return to attacking Osprey's neck a few times throughout the match. Okada started looking for the Rainmaker kind of early in my opinion, and that might have shown that he was underestimating Osprey. 
Seeing the Rainmaker coming, Osprey picked up his pace considerably, and he and Okada had the first of many great counter sequences in this match. The match continued to pick up pace throughout the rest of its duration, and both men hit some gigantic moves. Okada hit multiple os cutters, hitting one on the floor, and he kept countering Okada's attempt at the Rainmaker. It seemed like Osprey would need to hit Stormbreaker to put Okada away though, and Okada was able to somehow turn the Stormbreaker into a Rainmaker. That started the final sequence of the match that saw about four Rainmakers to Osprey and his torn up neck. Okada got the pinfall victory after an exciting fight where they really had me believing that not only could Osprey beat Okada, but that he definitely was going to beat him. Osprey couldn't do it during night 7 though, and Okada remained undefeated and tied for first in the block alongside Kenta. Osprey gave another spectacular and dangerously gutsy performance, but he unfortunately sits in a 4-way tie for the bottom of A block. After night 7 was over, everyone got to rest for a few days before heading to Hiroshima for the next 5 B block matches. Night 8 of the G1 Climax 29 took place in Hiroshima Sun Plaza Hall in Hiroshima, Japan on July 24th, 2019 at 6.30pm Japanese Standard Time. After four opening tag matches, the first B-block match of the fourth round of the tournament was Toru Yano vs. Juice Robinson. Both men were tied heading into this match with two wins and four points each, but for some reason it felt to me like Yano was getting on a roll. Maybe it's because Juice was coming off of a loss to Jeff Cobb in the previous round, and Yano had just gotten a big win over Jay White, but I was nervous for Juice as his match with Yano began. As always with Toru Yano, this was a fun and goofy match. Juice was not down for playing any games tonight, and he wouldn't even shake Yano's hand when Yano offered a handshake as the match began. After some pleading and playing to the crowd from Yano, Juice did relent, and he immediately got rolled up in a schoolboy as soon as he grabbed Yano's hand. That started a bit of a pattern in this match. Juice would hesitate, but then he would go for Yano only to be met, more often than not, with another schoolboy. There were so many schoolboys in this match. Juice's guarded nature did pay off though. Despite almost getting counted out by some Yano shenanigans at ringside, Juice kept pushing forward and calling Yano out on his cheating. That led to Juice hitting the left hand of God and Pulp Friction to get a rather quick win. So with this match, Juice jumps up to even with the block leader John Moxley, though Moxley had a match in hand later in the night, and Yano stays at 4 points, and is now at a 50% win percentage in 4 matches. I feel like Yano will get some more wins over the next few weeks, and I feel like Juice is probably going to keep a pretty good pace with Moxley. As for this match, it was a very fun Yano match, though it's not my favorite he's had so far in this year's G1. The second B-block match during Night 8 was between two men who sat near the bottom of the block with only one win and two points each. It was Tai Chi with the lovely Miho Abe versus Hiroki Goto. I've talked about how much I've been enjoying Tai Chi during this tournament, and this match was no exception, but I was kind of pulling for Goto in this match. I think I was pulling for Goto mostly because he was one of my picks to win B-block, and this match definitely felt like a must-win for him. Really, for both men. As the commentators Kevin Kelly and Rocky Romero were even saying during the match, with the block leaders already at 6 points and Moxley with the potential to reach 8 points before the night was over, leaving round 4 with only one win would probably be the end of the tournament. Mathematically, it would be possible, but realistically, it would be highly unlikely. Both men knew the stakes, but Tai Chi had a very clear plan that he stuck to, or rather, it seemed like he had a whole bunch of plans that all involved cheating and getting Goto to forget any plan that he might have had. 
Taichi started by attacking Carl Fredericks at ringside before Goto had even started heading to the ring. Fredericks trains at New Japan's LA Dojo, and Goto has been training at the LA Dojo himself recently in preparation for the G1 Climax. Goto has been wearing his LA Dojo shirt for the entire tournament so far, and Fredericks has been doing the same. So Taichi dragged Fredericks into the ring, beat him up, and stripped off his LA Dojo shirt. As Goto quickly headed to the ring, Taichi dropped the shirt down to the mat and stomped on it. That, of course, made Goto angry, but Taichi survived Goto's initial onslaught long enough to enact his second plan by drawing Goto down to ringside. Taichi first pushed Miho Abe into Goto's way. While Goto and the referee were distracted with her, Taichi ran around and grabbed Fredericks again, this time shoving the young lion into Goto. That was the advantage Taichi needed, and Taichi dominated the next segment of the match. Goto kept starting to build a comeback, but Taichi was throwing a lot of kicks tonight, and most of them were connecting pretty hard. Taichi got caught and countered a few times, but it wasn't until Goto headbutted an Inseguri that he really started to take over. Seeing that Goto was about to do some damage, Taichi again cheated, this time pushing the referee into Goto as he was charging. Taichi tried to use the confusion to grab his microphone and use that, but Goto snatched it and threw it away. But Taichi had still yet another plan in mind, and when Goto set up for his finisher, Taichi grabbed the referee again, and in the confusion, kicked Goto in the groin and put him in a Gato clutch for the victory. So closing in on halfway through the G1, Goto sits with only one win to his three losses, and Taichi moves up to 2-2. Two yeah, I did want Goto to win, but I'm actually pretty happy for Tai Chi at the same time. I'm really looking forward to the rest of his matches in the tournament. The next B-Block match during Night 8 featured two men who were on a roll. Shingo Takagi dropped his first tournament match to Juice Robinson, but he'd won two straight heading into Night 8. His opponent, John Moxley, was the only man undefeated in B-Block heading into this match. So this wasn't necessarily a make-or-break match for either man, but if Shingo won, then both men would be tied at the top of the block alongside Juice, but if Moxley won, he would sit alone at the top of the block with at least double the points of anyone else except for Juice. This was a tough call for me personally because I really like both Shingo and Moxley, but I think I was pulling for Shingo on this night. Unfortunately for me, and for Shingo, Moxley had a great game plan which he executed pretty much flawlessly. Up to this point in New Japan matches, Moxley has most prominently shown his brawling styles and willingness, or maybe his desire, to bring weapons and furniture into his matches. He's created a lot of violence and chaos up to this point in New Japan, and though he brought that to this match with Shingo as well, Moxley also showed how there's probably always a plan behind the chaos. Shingo and Moxley started the match by trading strikes and just trying to wear each other down. The fight quickly went to the floor, as most Moxley matches tend to do, but Moxley didn't fare too well. Moxley set up a table, but before he could use it, Shingo hit Moxley with a Death Valley driver on the floor. Realizing that he needed to try something else, back in the ring, Moxley put Shingo in a figure 4 leg lock. Moxley followed that up with a figure 4 with Shingo's legs wrapped around one of the ring posts. That was the start of Moxley's plan to attack Shingo's legs and Moxley doggedly stuck to that plan for the entirety of the rest of the match. Back in the best of the Super Junior tournament this year, whenever Kevin Kelly would talk about how Shingo had never been pinned or submitted in New Japan, he would also talk about how Shingo himself had mentioned that no one in New Japan had gone after his legs in any real way. Shingo himself said that his legs might be a weakness that just hadn't been tested by anyone up to that point. 
Even in the finals of the Super Junior Tournament, which Will Ospreay won, Ospreay didn't really attack Shingo's legs. Apparently Moxley was listening, and it was a great strategy that paid off in numerous ways. During this match, Shingo would start attacking Moxley with strikes. Shingo would get the better of Moxley if they were just standing toe-to-toe, but Moxley could just go low and attack Shingo's legs to stop him. Also, one of Shingo's best weapons, the pumping bomber running lariat, was practically negated because Shingo could only run in short bursts, and most of the time he couldn't run at all. There was less momentum behind the strikes, and that was a huge tool weakened by Moxley's repeated leg attacks. Late in the match, Moxley finally got to use the table he'd set up at ringside. He drove Shingo knees first onto the table, and the table bent but did not break. That seemed worse for Shingo's knees though. Moxley followed that up with what was basically a one-man concerto on the floor, then Moxley started using his own knees to attack. Shingo hit some of his signature moves towards the end of the match, but Moxley hit a few knee tremblers to put Shingo down, then Moxley used a Texas Cloverleaf to force Shingo to submit. I was quite a bit surprised to see Shingo submit, but the focused and relentless attack from Moxley was entirely convincing. And so with Shingo's first ever submission loss in New Japan Pro Wrestling, Moxley sits alone at the top of B Block with no one close enough to catch him tonight. Unfortunately for Shingo, that means he drops to 2-2 two two nearly halfway through the G1. The next to last match during Night 8 was Jay White being accompanied by Gato versus Jeff Cobb. Neither man has had the best start to this year's G1 Climax, but White was the only man in either block who still hadn't gotten a win, so he was slightly more desperate than Cobb heading into their match. I've talked about how annoying White has been during the G1 when talking about the way he has been wrestling, and though he did pull some of his intentionally annoying shenanigans tonight, he seemed to finally be more focused on directly causing damage with his underhanded tactics, rather than just playing defense and hoping for the best. As he's done in previous tournament matches, Jay White left the ring immediately upon the opening bell. Cobb didn't want to follow, but after White got back into the ring and left two more times, Cobb got frustrated enough to follow. That's when White and Gato pulled a distraction that broke Cobb's concentration and led to White getting a nasty-looking neckbreaker on Cobb from the apron down to the floor. That was the turning point for Jay White. In the ring, White started to put together some good offense while peppering his assault with some quick and dirty moves. One of my favorites was when both men were laying down on the mat. I could see White's hand go up and over to Cobb's head, so when Cobb tried to kip up, White yanked his hair midway through the kip up and drove Cobb's head back down into the mat. It was a simple move, but I don't think I've ever seen that done before. Cobb started to mount a comeback with a series of throws, but White stopped Cobb's momentum with probably his best sequence of offense in the entire G1 so far. White hit a DDT and two flatliners among some other moves and really had Cobb rocked. Cobb was noticeably slower now, and even though he still hit some big moves, like a second rope deadlift superplex, another tandem distraction from Gato and White helped White hit a low blow and a Blade Runner rolling cutter for his first pinfall victory in this year's G1. So with that, White got his first two points, though he's still at the bottom of B block in a four-way tie. And the final B block match during Night 8 of the G1 Climax 29 was the never openweight champ Tomohiro Ishii, versus the IWGP Intercontinental Champion Tetsuya Naito. Ishii started the G1 strong with two wins, but he lost his previous match, and Naito was the exact opposite, with a disappointing pair of losses to start, and his first and only win so far coming in the previous round. 
With Moxley already at 8 points to lead the block, Ishii could have used a win in this match, but Naito needed one. The match started more respectfully than either man has really been so far in the tournament. Both Ishii and Naito were rather quiet before the bell, then they came together in the center of the ring and started trading blows. Both men can take a beating, and it seemed right from the start that they were going to test each other's endurance. Ishii was probably content with just trading strikes all night, but Naito went after Ishii's neck early, and he kept going back to his neck often. Naito initially used a cravat to twist Ishii down to the mat, and Naito would continue to chip away at Ishii's neck in between the numerous strikes thrown by each man. Naito was the first to bring some emotion into the match when he started to antagonize Ishii. Ishii had his head down at one point in the match, so Naito slapped Ishii on the back of the head and spit at him. Ishii slowly looked up, stared at Naito for a few seconds, then Ishii drove Naito into one of the corners. Ishii hit Naito with a repeated combination of slaps and elbow strikes, one after the other, for about probably 30 seconds or more. Naito would start to slump over in the corner, but Ishii would just pull Naito back up to his feet for another non-stop round of strikes. Ishii pulled Naito up twice before Ishii started to tire himself out. Naito had trouble getting any offense for a while after that, until he hit Ishii with a huge DDT that drove Ishii straight down onto the top of his head. Naito continued that line of attack with a hanging neckbreaker and a poison rana that put Ishii's neck in serious trouble. Ishii stopped Naito's momentum with a huge lariat, and from there the match started to move into its final stages. Ishii would hit some huge moves like a jumping headbutt in the corner and a jumping superplex off of the top rope, but the final few minutes of the match were dominated by counter after counter as Naito started looking for Destino to capitalize on Ishii's hurting neck. Ishii continued to push back, but Naito was persistent and finally got Destino and the pinfall victory. With that, Naito goes on a two-win roll and has four points, and Ishii goes into a two-loss slump, though he also has four points. I think Ishii will pull out of his slump and get some more big wins, but I think Naito is going to start to push forward and make a case for catching up to Moxley and Juice, at least I hope he does. And with that fantastic finish to Night 8, the fourth round of the G1 Climax 29 came to an end. While all the matches were good, I think three really stood out to me as my clear-cut favorites of Round 4. From Night 7, the A-Block matches of Kota Ibushi vs. Sonata and Kazuchika Okada vs. Will Ospreay were at the top for me. And from Night 8, the B-Block match main event of Tetsuya Naito vs. Tomohiro Ishii won the night. And I do think if there is a runner-up that the John Moxley vs. Shingo Takagi match came in at a close second place for me on Night 8. And again, if anything I've said has intrigued you about any of these matches, go sign up for the NJPW World Streaming Service. It's pretty cheap, and if you sign up now, at the very least, you'll be ready to cherry-pick certain matches when I do my Best of the G1 special episode as the tournament comes to an end in early August. But we're not quite there yet. We're still talking about Round 4. With Naito's momentum after Night 8, I won't change him as one of my picks for the winner of B-Block, but I think my scenario with Goto winning is not going to happen. Goto isn't mathematically eliminated yet, but he's three matches behind Moxley, with only five matches left to go. Naito was only one better, but gaining two matches on Moxley feels doable, while three seems kind of impossible. So that means Jay White and Jeff Cobb are probably done as well, since they're both tied at the bottom with Goto at only two points. Naito is in a five-way tie with Shingo, Taichi, Ishii, and Toru Yano at four points, 
and Juice sits at 6 points, just behind John Moxley, who leads B-Block with 8. So B-Block is still realistically winnable for most of the competitors. A-Block seems a little more spread out. Okada and Kenta are tied for first with 8 points each, and they have at least double the points of everyone else in the block. Tanahashi, Abushi, Evil, and Archer are all tied with 4 points, and Osprey, Sonata, Saber, and Fale are at the bottom of the block with 2 points. So again, no one is out, but there are more men in A block who are probably fighting more for pride at this point. Okada and Kenta are starting to run away with the tournament on their side, but barring a draw in the next round, one of them is going to stay well ahead of most of the pack, since Kenta and Okada will be facing each other in round 5. Round 5 is coming up, and as the exact halfway point of the G1, it has the potential to start knocking some guys out of the tournament. In A block, if Okada wins his match against Kenta, then Osprey, Fale, and Sabre could all potentially be eliminated if they lose their match in the same round. Osprey and Fale will face each other in round 5, so one of them is guaranteed to be in danger. In B block, if Moxley wins his match and Cobb loses his, then Cobb will be out of the tournament. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll talk about all the possible eliminations and more in the next G1 Climax 29 mini-sode of the Wrestling House Show, and you'll be able to find that mini-sode on cnjradio.com, the home of the Wrestling House Show and the home of the family of CNJ Radio podcasts. Check out cnjradio.com for every episode of the Wrestling House Show, as well as some written recaps and reviews of every night of the G1 Climax 29, along with some handy block standings updated for each and every night. Also, interact on our Facebook and Twitter, at House Show, and let me know who you think will be the first wrestler eliminated in the G1. There might not be any eliminations in Round 5, but if I had to bet, I think Fale might be the first one to go. We'll find out soon, but until then, I have a bunch more wrestling to watch. I have all of the wrestling to watch, so I better go. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Be real here. Shingo Takagi is not a junior heavyweight. The man is a freaking tank. Nearly took my head off. I want to see the results of his weigh-in. I'm glad he's in the heavyweight division where he belongs. He's a freaking tank. It's like a rhinoceros. You know, if he's a cruiserweight, I'm one of the Doobie brothers. Just wanted to make that note.